I had no idea about finance. I had no idea about coverage policy. You know, I'd grown up as a Kaiser baby, right? So between having the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic and Kaiser, like I, I didn't understand that insurance can be tricky and there's a whole expensive finance part to it, right? And so when I came to Medicare, we started the creation of coverage with evidence development. And that was a novel idea. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. Shami Feinglass grew up among the San Francisco royalty that defined the 60s and 70s culture here in the city by the bay. Her single mom raised her while helping found the legendary Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic, which was Shami's first exposure to medicine. She always knew her mom raised her to be a leader and an ally and to take the chances that brought her happiness. And those chances have led her to her current role as global head of medical and government affairs, Danaher, one of the nation's biggest companies you never heard of. This is Tectonics. I'm David Shaywitz. And I'm Lisa Sunan, and we're grateful to Manat Health for sponsoring today's show. Manat Health is a multidisciplinary professional services firm that integrates a full-service law firm with a broad-based strategic business and policy consulting practice to help our clients grow and prosper. Manat Health supports the full range of stakeholders in transforming America's healthcare system. So, David. Yes, Lisa? You weirdo. Um, I see that you have relocated your writing to a new locale. Yes, to Timmerman Report. So I was, I've, as I think everybody in biotech is, I've been a fan of Luke forever. He used to write for Exconomy um, and just a, a really good journalist and a terrific guy. And he's yep. doing this sort of entrepreneurial thing, as you know, because you've written for it yes, too. I have. Uh, the Timmerman Report. And you've know, been talking with him for a while. And then um, basically, uh, I started to be starting to get um, after Matt Herper left Forbes. There was sort of a little bit of a change in yeah. um, approach there, and um, getting a lot more sort of feedback. Oh, make sure you write. You stay in your swim lane. Stay in your swim lane. Stay in your swim lane on the health stuff, where some of the most important issues are. You know, are multidisciplinary. Right. They cross boundaries. Right. Um, like the article, the piece I wrote about. So you can't uh, color in the lines. Is that your point? I've never been able to, but in particular, some of the broader issues, like with range, where right. ironically the whole point is to be. You know. Is to, is, to, is to be multidisciplinary. Right. And then a discussion of a recent um, uh, Moonrise podcast about the importance of narrative and technology adoption. So I thought these are of critical importance mm. for health tech entrepreneurs. Um, and they were like, well, you're coloring outside the lines. And so here with, with Luke, I think he has a much broader view of this and has been really embracing and is a fantastic editor. And I couldn't be more thrilled. That's awesome. I think that's a great move for you. I'm uh, super excited. Yeah. So everybody can find David's writing there at the Timmerman Report online. So, Lisa. Yes, David. Tell us about our guest today. I will. Royalty. (laughs) (laughs) So, Shami could have been a born-again flower child. Her mom's best friend was the legendary concert promoter, Bill Graham. Her godfather is the legendary chef, Narcy David. She grew up thinking nothing of hanging out at Santana's birthday party or having Passover Seder at Delancey Street. But she didn't end up as the perennial Berkeley protester in Birkenstocks because she had higher aspirations to be a ballerina or a doctor. In a way, she got both. She's doctor by day and dances for fun. And she also happens to be ranked nationally in BMX bike riding and number one in Maryland. Damn. Go figure. So Shami, Shami, pardon me. So Shami, your life looks a little bit like a segment out of Forrest Gump in some pretty wild places and always turning them to your advantage. What is your story? How did you get here? And thanks for being <laughs> on the show. <laughs> thanks for having me, Lisa and David. So uh, I got here through a series of fortunate events, I suppose. Um, I grew up in San Francisco, as you guys know, and I'm a bit of a nonconformist. But growing up in the city in the 70s and 80s, 
um, to me wasn't any different than anywhere else in the world. And I thought it was pretty cool. And like any kid, I got bored with some things and excited by other things. But I, I didn't appreciate until college that I had a rather unusual upbringing. That's awesome. So let me so let me start by saying you're now your first name, your actual full first name is Shamaram, who I understand to be a Syrian queen who actually invented the library, even though a man, Herodotus, later got credit for it. Have you, how have you lived that thought? How have you lived that experience? So uh, it is interesting. Um, I, Shamiram was a queen, as you said, um, and it has been kind of amusing growing up because nobody could pronounce that name. So in assembly, <laughs> it was quite frustrating because they'd get to the last names and get to the F. I'd raise my hand. I'm like, I'm here. Don't even try. It's Shami. Um, but, <laughs> but to think about what's in a name, you know, she didn't get credit globally for what she did. She's in, in the books of Herodotus, which show up in the English patient and is the only place I've ever seen my name in print which as a kid, you know, you have all those little bracelets that say Lisa or David. Trust me, there were none that said Shamiram. Um, and so, you know, she didn't get credit for this library and what I'd say is the larger press known as every other book other than Herodotus. And um, I think since birth, I was created to make sure that women actually had a voice. So there is a lot in that name, though I tell you, I did not appreciate it growing up, except it was, you know, kind of unusual and weird and wanted to conform. You couldn't have a license plate for it, your bike. I, I, I couldn't. I couldn't. Right. So you were you were a dancer as a kid. You danced in high school and college, and then you got to, you got to to Smith and you studied a combination of biochemistry and African American studies. That is an unusual combination, isn't it? What was your thinking there? Well, I. Um, started with biochemistry and I had danced since I was little. And so one of the reasons I had picked Smith was on my tour, they had really great labs for research, uh, the nicest I'd ever seen and amazing dance studios. And they had several. And I thought, wow, this is a great combination. Um, and so I was taking a variety of different dance classes there. Um, I had stopped ballet after I had hurt, my uh, knee, but I had done modern and a variety of other things. But at Smith, there was an African dance teacher called known uh, as Pearl Primus. And Pearl was the first person to really bring African dance to the U.S., or that's what we were told in college. So maybe I need to check my facts on that. But um, she was teaching an African dance class, so I took it and really, really liked it. And then she was also teaching an African history course. And I thought, well, I'd really like to understand what some of these traditional dances are that we're doing. And that'd be cool to study that. Uh, and so I did. And so randomly, Smith does not have any minor. But if I had a minor, it would have been around African history and dance. So you said you always had wanted to be a doctor, even from when you were a child, despite your love of dance. And... After Smith, you were going to go to medical school, but your mom, who was a physical therapist, said you needed to work in the real world first. Um, and so you ended up working in an ophthalmologist's office, I believe. What what was the big revelation that you learned working in the quote-unquote real world? Which seems like such a good idea in retrospect, doesn't it? <laughs> it really did. She got a little more than she bargained for because I ended up taking about three years off before medical school. But um, I had I had come home 
from college and was working in an ophthalmologist's office and um, was the front office staff and would see a lot of people coming in. Um, it was in downtown San Francisco um, on Sutter and Post, basically, in that area. And um, we had a variety of different people coming in from work with different eye problems. But to me, it was still not really healthcare, right? Because I'd grown up, since my parents had helped found the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic, I'd grown up around people that I thought really needed healthcare, right? Like they, there was something they didn't have. They didn't have money or they didn't have a home or for some reason they were disenfranchised and, and Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic was really where they could go. Um, and at the time, I didn't understand that free healthcare or reduced cost healthcare was really a big deal. To me, it was just how we grew up and you can always get services if you need them. So the ophthalmology clinic was really uh, odd to me, actually. Um, certainly, it provided the money I needed to have graduated college and then figure out what else I was going to do. But it was a certainly a juxtaposition between what I felt was helping a larger mass of people that really at that stage in their life needed help versus just these people that um, were fairly well off and needed uh, glasses and um, maybe had a cataract and that was transformative when they got their cataract improvement. I thought that was super cool. You couldn't see, now you can. But other than that, it didn't quite ring true for me. How did that provide a link to your health policy sort of orientation? Because I know you went off into the health policy vector after that. How did that I happen? did. I did. Well, it was actually um, because I'd spent a summer at Genentech doing research. And one of my, one of the other guys who was a college intern as well was, uh, from another school where they could actually major in health policy. And I didn't know what the heck health policy was. But once he explained it to me, I was like, oh, wait, you mean like doctors can actually change the way patients get health care and do things that impact a patient's health? And you can do that as a doctor. And he said, yeah, you know, that's what I've been studying. So I got bit by this policy bug. And it was really cool that I could do it in health, which is what I'd been thinking I wanted to do most of my life. And what Frankly, it's an environment I'd been raised in. I mean, my father was a pharmacist. We lived eight blocks from UCSF. Um, half of my swim training was up at the UCF pool, UCSF pool. And so I was around all these people all the time. And so for me, it was that combination. But um, the other thing, besides being a biochemistry major and having a lot of African history and dance in college, the only government classes I took were Chinese government. So I'd been really interested in Chinese government. Um, it was a great class. I'd gone over to China with a friend of mine in um, the summer of 89. And for those of you that know history, um, was actually in the air during, during uh, Tiananmen Square. Yeah, right after Tiananmen Square. Cause, um... Well, it was happening while I was on a plane. And so um, I had been there during many of the protests, which frankly, growing up in San Francisco, you know, you know, protests, right? But these were the most peaceful protests. And I would read the newspaper and say, well, that's just propaganda. These are, there's no violence there because there wasn't. I had been in Shanghai, Wuxi, Sucho, Hancho, nothing. We did cancel our trip to uh, uh, Beijing at that time. And, and when I landed um, for a while, nobody called. And we, I didn't really know why. And then finally a friend called. They said, look, there was one American taken in Beijing. We were really worried it was you. And I thought, I had no idea because I'd been in the air. And we really didn't think it happened. So it was really, really bizarre. But it did happen. Um, so, so, you know, here I land back at home and I'm like, wow, 
there's some global policy, there's some local stuff. I'm used to healthcare. How do we combine these things? I only know Chinese government and Chinese policy. But if I'm going to make a change, I've got to go to D.C. So literally, I talked my way out of a paper bag and somehow landed a job as a legislative analyst at the National Association of State Universities and Land-Grant Colleges. So you're there, you show up in D.C., you really don't know how to do your job Mm -mm. fundamentally. Mm -mm. And what was the, you know, what was that experience like? What was it like to go to the Hill? Um, So first off, I want to give a shout out to Schoolhouse Rock because, again, I did not know U.S. government. I'm just a bill. <laughs> yes, I'm only a bill. My kids love and this, too. And I got as far as Capitol Hill. Well, now I'm stuck. So was this you sitting on the Capitol steps? Yeah, it was me sitting on the Capitol steps, literally on the steps, looking, <laughs> looking at the House, looking at the Senate. I couldn't remember the difference between the two. Um, I mean, we can make a comment on the American education system versus the Canadian system because my husband at this age actually knew the difference, but I clearly did not. I could have told you anything about China or Africa, but not the U.S. So I literally sat there singing, I'm just Bill. And I sang the whole thing, hoping to get to what's the House and the Senate. And lo and behold, there is some language in there about House and Senate. So um, it served me well from watching cartoons when I was, so was it dc was it full of a bunch of old men uh making decisions for the world or uh what was what was that like because that wasn't your crowd i mean (laughs) no 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 it's really interesting because um it was at that point that i found that the hill truly is run by 20 something it's true um Happily, they were all my friends or became my friends. Do you think it's the same today as it was then? Is it the hill still run by a bunch of 20-year-olds? I think some of it still is. You still have that entry point. I think a lot of that. I mean, I was just back from this dinner in, yeah. in D.C. with all these legislative aides who were there. And um, it yeah. was a lot, of, uh, a lot of that demographic. Well, thank God for Schoolhouse Rock. The whole government can operate. <laughs> you were there about a year and a half um, uh, after recognizing that as you sat in rooms, they were doing health policy. They were populated by lawyers and no doctors. And that ultimately, I think, drove you back to your original medical school plan, right? It did. It did. Because I'd be sitting around these tables, and um, there were two really amusing pieces about this. One, um, when I did eventually leave to go to medical school, everybody assumed I was either going to law school or I was going back for my second Ph.D., because they assumed that there's no way I could be as young as I was and running all these coalitions. So that was, that was pretty amusing. Um, but my big concern had been there were people making health policy that didn't have any traditional background in health. They weren't nurses. They weren't doctors. They weren't PAs. They weren't med techs. They weren't clinical chemists. They weren't people that actually knew how medicine's supposed to work. Now, they were probably all patients, so maybe it was an early sense of patient voice, but I'm not really think, thinking that's what uh, we mean by it today. But I just felt there was a voice missing. So I said, all right, I've always wanted to be a doctor. Um, I really want to make sure there's a voice. So you went to Emory in the South. You got an MD degree and, and a PhD in public health. And when you were at Emory, you also got involved in the Carter Center, worked with Rosalind Carter on mental health issues. Tell us about that experience and and what impact that had on you and your career? Sure. So when I was in public health school there, um, getting my master's in public health, 
I was lucky enough to work with uh, one of my professors who was doing mental health research. Interestingly, he was doing mental health research in Sweden. So I was learning about all of the opportunities in Sweden, and they really do have a good system for providing mental health. At the same time, the Carter Center Mental Health Policy Project was looking for interns. And so because I'm at Emory and we're linked to the Carter Center, I applied and was selected for this internship that um, I didn't know at the time was fairly prestigious. And so I spent my time at the Carter Center. And at the time, Mrs. Carter was working with Mrs. Gore because the Clintons were doing health care reform in D.C. So I'm down in Atlanta, but coming up to D.C. a lot more often than anybody expected a public health or medical student to be doing because we were looking at inclusion of mental health in the Clinton health care reform package. And so um, it became amusing to my friends up here who said, you're in medical school. How do you have time to come up here? And I said, well, you know, I, you know me, I get a little bored with things, so I need a little, another opportunity. But for me, it was also because policy was near and dear to my heart. And when, one of the reasons I was accepted at Emory is they really were interested in having students who had somewhat non-traditional backgrounds. Um, you know, and I sort of fit that bill, right? You know, named by a famous restaurateur in his wine um, wine room and, you know, brought up by people that say hanging out at the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic or Delancey Street are pretty normal. Um, and then, you know, I get to hang backstage at concerts and also do rock med. So I did not fit the bill. I was really, and, and it's the South, right? I'd always wanted to go to Atlanta or New Orleans, but I didn't, I, I really, I really didn't fit exactly. So you went, you went through school, you finished, you had an amazing uh, opportunity as a, as a Robert Wood Johnson clinical scholar. Um, you did your fellowship, you did, you know, all of the things to be a doctor, but you always knew you were headed back to D.C. And, and by 2002, you were, in fact, in D.C. joining CMS to lead an effort to drive evidence-based health policy, which was then a novel idea, which always kills me when I hear that evidence-based anything was a novel idea. Um what what was CMS doing that wasn't evidence-based health policy before that? What Great did you, question. What did you come to change? I so so I didn't know much about Medicare. So my grounding in any healthcare agency was really more um, the you know ARC, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, or um, HRSA. It was not finance. And so I didn't know anybody there, but I thought, you know, if someone can unlock the box of Medicare, that's really valuable. And so I thought, if I don't last there very long, at least I'll have some great knowledge. But um, I ended up being there seven years. And for me, the interesting point was um, I came under Sean Tunis, and when he was recruiting me, he said, look, I really want to use evidence to make policy decisions. And I sort of laughed. Actually, I didn't sort of laugh. I guffawed on the phone and said, you know, I've been a legislative analyst slash lobbyist before, and I know that people want to use policy to make decisions. And they sometimes, I mean, evidence to make policy decisions. Evidence to make, yeah, 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 I know what you mean. They sometimes do, but I I don't see it all the time. So I'm intrigued that you want to do this. And I'm going to sign up for this ride. I'm not sure I believe you, but I'm trained as a Robert Wood Johnson clinical scholar, and I'm an internist and preventionist. And I certainly, if anybody's going to change it, I'm one of those people. So I'm signing up. I uh, love the attitude. Did you? We did. We did. 
We did. So it was really interesting. Um, you know, again, I had no idea about finance. I had no idea about coverage policy. You know, I'd grown up as a Kaiser baby, right? So between having the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic and uh, Kaiser, like I, I didn't understand that insurance can be tricky and there's a whole expensive finance part to it, right? So, um, and I, remember, I'd done residency in Oregon where there was a universal health plan. So my patients, for the most part, had coverage for what they needed. Atlanta was really where I saw most of the disparities around coverage and payment um, and people that were coming into our clinic that just, they didn't have anywhere else to go. And we were their safety net, but more than that, like, this is how they survived. And so when I came to Medicare, um, we started the creation of um, evidence, uh, coverage with evidence development. And that was a novel idea because what we were seeing uh, were technologies that really were at the forefront. They were going to have some, they had some great potential, but they're new. And so they hadn't been in the market long enough to gather all of the evidence that was necessary. So we were able to carve out a very small space for promising technologies that would benefit the Medicare population and deem it coverage with evidence development. And so I was, I helped create that concept um, with Sean and, and the team. Wow. So that's like a whole explain that. So that's a category. So before it was sort of either things were or weren't covered and you're trying to basically, what sounds like on the policy level, close a translational gap. Is that right? That's right. And that piece, again, smaller piece, um, was really for things that were quite novel. And frankly, things that commercial payers might not yet be paying for. And if they were something that were really groundbreaking and going to change a patient's life, we wanted to figure out a way to get access for the Medicare beneficiaries to these, these treatments. And so it's, we were using evidence to make other coverage decisions. So I don't want you guys to think this is the only space. It's not, but we, they're fairly traditional methods. You know, was the randomized control trial done? Did it include Medicare age patients? Does it show that there is actually going to be a change in the clinical practice? So it sounds really analogous to like the FDA approach of, um, of, of what they're doing with a lot of cancer medicines where they sort of give provisional approval or give a fast track while they say this looks promising, but we still expect you eventually to do a, uh, fa- you know, a, a typical phase three study. A yeah. post-market study. Well, a phase three study, but like, yeah. 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 So you told me that you'd often sit across the table from people in the healthcare industry while you were doing this work. Yeah. And wonder why some of them were so poorly informed about healthcare in the policy world. Um, so, and yet <laughs> you, you found yourself crossing over to the poor, for-profit side. What, what led you to cross over to the dark side? Opportunity. What was, what was the, <laughs> the catalyst for that? And, and what did, what most surprised you about the difference? So the catalyst for that was I, um, would sit with a lot of industry, and some were incredibly well informed, incredibly helpful when working with government. They were truly a partner. We were truly trying to get um, needed technology to patients. And then there were others that I couldn't figure out why they couldn't get with the program. Like they, we we put everything on the website for Medicare. We coached them on how to come to us, and I just felt like we weren't getting transparency. And then there was a third group that were the startups that. We actually always were happy to help because they didn't know up from down and we were happy to help them with this piece because they were just so small they didn't have those resources. So for me, I said, you know, you can't throw stones at glass houses. I'm sitting here 
looking at these industry partners and not understanding the variation. And I can't point fingers until I've gone and, and tried it. Much like I couldn't point fingers at the government until I went and tried it. Um, and just like any job, there are people that are incredibly dedicated, incredibly smart, um, and really, really important that we have employed in our federal government. Tell, tell us a story about like how, so, so I, I get what you're saying. When you got to the, your first for-profit company was a large medical device company. What was the revelatory, you know, experience if there was one? What so, you know, looking at it from the policy side, what did you come, you know, come now you're sitting on the other side of the table. What did you not know that you found out? Um, well, it felt like government was organized a lot more efficiently um, than that company, which was bizarre to me. I mean, I did not expect that at all. Now that's that's not fair for the whole company, but it was I just saw these pockets of like, why are we doing it this way? Um, and I also saw people not prepared to change the way they leverage and use evidence. And I thought that was odd because it's not as if we haven't been using evidence to make decisions for years in other spaces like cardiology or drugs. Um, and in the space I was in, in the orthopedic industry, they just were a little bit farther behind in what their evidence generation was. They not that they didn't have evidence, they actually had registries and some, some great evidence on long-standing products. But for their newer products, I said, you guys, there's pragmatic trials, there's all these different ways to do studies, let's look at where we go with that. And so those were the two things. And did you, do you think it's changed at all? I do. In the however many years it's been since then? I do, I do. Even in the, in the orthopedic space as well? Yeah, I do. Um, people are understanding that they have to generate evidence that meets the needs of doctors or people that are giving the services or prescribing the services and so that the patients can actually get adequate care. And having come from a payer, the payers needed to figure out what they're going to cover or not. And for me, it was eye-opening to see that you could change the way people were leveraging evidence, that you could change the way people thought about evidence as and and also to see them focus more narrowly on the patient populations they need to serve. So years past, you would see large studies that um, some people would try to use to say, well, you know, this serves all patients and all people. And over time, people have become more discreet in the allocates of evidence they want to use for certain conditions, which I think is appropriate. Isn't a lot of it because of re the reimbursement pressures? I mean, I know both in pharma, it's a huge deal because people, you know, in many cases, it's not even like the FDA is the biggest hurdle. It's uh, convincing appropriately payers that um, that the innovation is really going to make a difference for these this particular well-characterized group of patients. And similarly, the big problem with um, uh, in the medical device space is that people who are funding it, um, you know, for startups or whatever, have to fund it typically not just for approval, but it's really the battle for reimbursement that's like, if anything, is really slowed or, or hampered a lot of the innovation in that space, just the brutality of, of dealing with the, the reimbursement and working out that piece. And it sounds like you were really at the cutting edge of that where you realized that a lot of the people who were doing this work didn't necessarily have that aspect of it figured out yet. True, because I just didn't know how to connect point A to point B. You're exactly right. Do you think they didn't know or they didn't want to? I mean, it's obviously a lot nicer 
to put your products out there regardless of knowing the evidence of their, whether they're better or not and, and get paid for it, which was the tradition, especially in orthopedics. Um, so I'm curious if you think this was they didn't know or they didn't, they didn't want. I think it's a combination. It's really a combination, right? So I think a lot didn't know it. They didn't really know they needed it for that because they hadn't needed it for re- reimbursement in the past. I mean, this really was something that changed while these companies were in flux. And so they have people that are really trying to do the best that they can do, but they didn't fully understand the policy impact of reimbursement, especially when products got more innovative. So to take a left turn, you, because you did take a left turn, you, <laughs> you didn't love the company you were working for. You decided to leave and you didn't know which path you were going to take. You had so many different paths you'd sort of forge. But while you took 15 months off to figure out your next move, uh, you took up BMX bike riding. And not like you took it up because you were taking your kids to the park, but you took it up at hardcore. Um, so now you ride, maybe not as often as you'd like, but you're, as I understand, you're ranked number one in Maryland in BMX bike riding and race around against a bunch of kids who are, you That's know, insane. less than half your age. So what What the hell? How did that happen? And <laughs> What drove you to even try it, much less excel at it? So, so it's actually quite funny. So my son was four and a half, and he wasn't getting off training wheels. And so um, my husband had raced BMX when he was a kid in Canada and so took him to the track and said, do you want to race those hills? And, of course, my son is jumping up and down in his four-and-a-half-year-old self and said, oh, yeah, 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 Daddy, yeah, yeah. And he said, well, you got to get off the training wheels. So – Within seven hours, the kid's off his training wheels. So we start him on the track. And I didn't understand that at four and a half, you can actually race BMX and win a trophy. So my son starts racing. Yeah, I had no idea. I'm like, he's four and a half. Like, I think he can barely walk. Like, he just learned to ride this bike. He can skate because he's Canadian. So they've known how to skate since they were two. But, you know. Yeah, it's genetic up there. And skiing was shortly after that. Exactly. It's totally genetic. Um, And so I... He started racing. So I'd go, and then Gre- Greg, my husband, started racing about six months into it because a bunch of the dads were there. They're like, oh, let's, we, should, we should race too. And then when I, I took time off, I, I was at the track one day, and one of the women came up to me and said, you know, you should really try this. And I said, you're crazy. I'm essentially de facto the team doctor. The number of accidents that happen on this track that I have to get an ambulance for and stabilize on the track are no small joke. And also, I value my bones, and I'm old. Right. And, and furthermore, I'm not in any athletic shape at all. There's no way I'm going to make it around. So amusingly, one day uh, after a two hours in the class, which was not well planned, they said, oh, come on, try this track. So I got on the bike, made it about halfway around and stopped. And my husband and everybody on the team were yelling, like, why are you stopping? You're doing fine. And I could barely breathe. I said, guys, my lungs are in my brain at this point. I cannot breathe. They're like, but you're fine. I'm like, I know, but I don't want to fall, but I loved it, right? So after I got my breath back, um, went around the rest of the track and then said, okay, if I'm going to do this, um, how do I play? So I said, well, you'll train this year and you'll, you'll ride competitively next year. I said, oh, no, no, no. You don't really know me that well. Number one, I'm fairly competitive. Number two, I'm never going to have this much time off again. Like, I mean, I might, but it wasn't something that um, my, my whole life goal was to take time off every five years, although now I think it should be. And, um, you know, I, well, I just, I won't have this protected time. I've never had this protected time. So what are we doing here? How do I get in? They said, well, you're halfway through the season. I said, fine. 
how many races do I need to do, local races and national races, to get both a local place and a national place. So we did that math and a whole spreadsheet about it. And that's what wow. we did. So have you, have you gotten hurt playing? Um, right. I did have a shoulder injury about four years ago that is probably minor on a 17-year-old kid. Um, on someone in their 40s was not. So it's, uh, except for my little shoulder injury, I've otherwise thankfully been fine with keeping those wheels to the ground. And the fun part is we race internationally. Oh, that's crazy. Where's the most exotic place you've raced? This whole thing is nutty. (laughs) David, it's super fun. There's Bay Area BMXers. You guys can all ride in the San Francisco area. I will hook you up. But um, (laughs) we have... So the first time we went overseas to race was um, Colombia, and I, you know, had was telling people, yeah, we're having a family vacation in Colombia because there's BMX World, and my son was racing that one. And then the following year, I was the Team USA representative for um, BMX. That one happened to be in South Carolina, um, and then last year um, they went to Baku. Azerbaijan. I couldn't go because I had a meeting. But what's fun about BMX World is your Team USA, which I thought, oh, that's great. You know, this is going to be fun. Um, but I had to fill out paperwork, and it was U.S. Olympic Committee paperwork. And my husband hands me his paperwork, and I looked at him and I said, honey, this is like the wrong paperwork. Why does it say Olympic? He said, Shami, <laughs> BMX World is a feeder to the Olympics. And therein ensued a 20-minute fit of laughter with me rolling on the floor going, I have never been considered for an, as an Olympic athlete in my entire life. Um, but, but, yeah, it's a feeder into that. So you had to ultimately join the real world, although I know that the other real world is still very much <laughs> part of your life. And you joined Danaher Corporation when they offered you a dream job mixing health policy and medicine and some leadership opportunities as well. Um, Danaher is a huge company. I think most people don't recognize it, but they own so many other company brands that are well recognized. Uh, if you if you look up Danaher Corp, you'll see, and um, we'll make a link available in the thing. But what? So what was that like going back? If you so you went back to industry, not to politics or not to government and policy. And um, what what have you learned in this sort of second go round at a company you do like? Um, yeah, no, they're fantastic. Um, there have been two things. One, it's in the diagnostic space, which I didn't know much about until coming to it, except that obviously I'm always ordering these tests in the hospital, right? And my pain point had always been I'm in the unit and I have a patient who's very ill and I need that test now. Please hurry up, lab. Please hurry up. But I didn't really know anything else about diagnostics. There's an incredible amount of software involved. There's an incredible amount of data um, and we, we help manage patients. Again, as a practicing physician, I have to order those tests in order to figure out what's going on with my patient, and it helps me make sure that they get the treatment that they need. So you've managed to stay clinically involved even with your busy job and your insane racing? <laughs> so in the last few years, not as much as I would like. Um, I am still licensed to practice medicine, and I'm board certified in prevention, preventive medicine. Um, but it has, it has tapered off to be volunteer bodily though, uh, side of the track kind do. of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> side of the track. But, um, but, um, the good thing about coming back to DC is a, a variety of my mentors and friends run free clinics here. And so, uh, they, as soon as I am not traveling as much internationally, I, I hope to be able to do more of that. So no, David, in the last couple of years, not as much. 
that's a great way to sort of transition towards the end here. So in your heart, you're still back at the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic, thinking about access and infectious disease and disparities. So have you managed to integrate that early sort of, you know, Bay Area hippie thinking into your corporate experience? Yes. And thankfully, Danaher lets me do it. So one of the things I wanted to do when I came to Danaher was I was very passionate about women and diverse diversity in leadership. And frankly, I was tired of being the only senior female walking into a room. And and I said to them, I said, look, don't hire me if you don't want me to challenge this. I said, I really, really, really am passionate about women and diverse leadership. And if you don't have diversity in your leadership, we're not as productive as a company, but it's also not a place I want to be. And so the great part about it is we have a whole focus on inclusion and diversity at Danaher. I've been able to work with the team to help build that. I'm not the one running it, but I'm that ally there. And I am seeing more women and diverse candidates in leadership roles in my company in the short time that I've been there. And for me, that's huge. This last week, your company appointed two very um, esteemed women to the board. One, Jess Mega, a former Tectonics alumna. Um, and uh, the other lady's name is escaping me right now, but another really uh, experienced and interesting position. Um, so that must be very gratifying for you to see. It is. It is. And it's really one of the reasons I came. And, and again, our executive leadership has been fully behind inclusion and diversity since I arrived. And that has been a large reason we're, we're where we are. So as we close out here, um, we were sort of curious, do you still see the old rock and roll crowd here? Because they're kind of hanging out around the uh, <laughs> where we're recording here in Marin. Um, do, you, uh, do, you, do, you, do you still connect with any of them? And do you have like a favorite song from that era? So um, I, I don't see a lot of them anymore. I mean, I do see um, Narcy David because he has, given the fact that he named me, he's still in our life. Um, and... I uh, I always chuckle about it because I didn't really understand that at 10, you weren't usually backstage at a day on the green. Like, that's just how we grew up. Or at 12, you weren't with your dad doing rock med out in the stand. So for me, there's sort of um, two spots to my uh, backstage with uh, who I used to call, in air quotes, Uncle Bill. Again, I always thought this guy was related to me until later, and he's not, to be very clear to everybody listening to, to TikTok. <laughs> but um, he was friends with my parents. And so they used to put on the free concerts in the park um, where the Hells Angels used to guard them, and those eventually became, you know, Day on the Green. And he was super nice and was including all the kids in this volleyball game. Um, and it was his birthday. So it was a big birthday cake that came out. And then I saw his name, and we're all like, oh, happy birthday, Santana. Um, so that's, that's the day I met Carlos Santana. He would not remember me from Adam at that point. Amusingly, my brother is named Adam, so maybe he wouldn't know either of us. A favorite song is from that concert would have actually been um, Show Me the Way because Peter Frampton was playing or Black Magic Woman. But from that era, yeah. I mean, from that era, the song I can't get out of my head, uh, there's two. Lido Shuffle by Boss Gags and Blinded by the Light, both by Bruce Springsteen and um, 
Manfred Mann's Earth Band, because both were played when I was a kid and seriously can't get them out of my head. Well, uh, this has been super fun, Shami. I mean, we've gone longer than our normal time because there's so much fun stuff to talk to you about. We so appreciate um, that you gave us this time to learn about all your wild and crazy adventures. Happy to, you guys. I really appreciate you doing this. I love this podcast and looking forward to hearing more. Today's guest, Shami Feinglass, was speaking to us from Washington, D.C. And one thing we didn't get to talk about is that Shami and I both attended the 1983 Day on the Green, although, of course, we didn't know each other then. Um, what a fascinating history. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I mean, I it's an insane arc for anyone's life. History doing so many things and kind of staying so true to herself. It's, it's just She's it's an inspiring. amazingly wonderful and grounded person. And uh, we didn't even talk about the fact that she's you know has a family and kids and a real life on top of it all. So uh, she's she's really special. You can follow David's column, Astounding Health Tech, at the Timmerman Report. Right, and now you don't have to have all of the uh, ads that would perpetually uh, cram in your face, so it's fantastic. <laughs> Luke does a great job. You can similarly follow Lisa's lucid writing at Venture Valkyrie. We are grateful to Manat Health for sponsoring today's show. Manat Health is a multidisciplinary professional services firm that integrates a full-service law firm with a broad-based strategic business and policy consulting practice to help clients grow and prosper. Manat Health supports a full range of stakeholders in transforming America's healthcare system. Take, Take care. Yes, I'm only a bill. And it's a vote for me on Capitol Hill. Ba, 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 ba. <laughs> to the White House where I...